Welcome to the BNP Rome Podcast, Season 2. Once again, this is your host, Brian, and as always, thanks for joining me. Welcome to Episode 7. P is for Propaganda, the Pure Stuff. The C.J. Hopkins Episode. Today's podcast is a mixture of what I've done in Season 2 with the Stream of Consciousness Riverside Ramblers and what I did in Season 1, where I read some media pieces that I want to bring to your attention. I'm going to start with those media pieces because I think they are the stars of this show. And that particular star is a man named C.J. Hopkins, who I am delighted to discover and share with you. However, though I start with the media clips, If you make it to the end of the reasonably brief Riverside Rambler, you'll hear me speak as though the clips are coming up after them. Obviously, my mind changed. Anyway, there are two media clips, but both are focused on this one person, C.J. Hopkins. Hopkins is an American playwright, novelist, columnist, and expat living in Berlin, Germany. It's likely I'm being put on some lists as we speak for daring to record a podcast episode about my respect for his work, and even more for daring to share some of that work with you. Yes, folks, in these increasingly censorious times, well, even a small fry like me might find himself in the frying pan. And speaking of fries and frying pans, did you happen to catch that news story this week about how McDonald's That bastion of healthy living and respect for a healthy economy and biosphere will be changing its packaging to encourage everyone to get with the pro... uh, sorry, to get vaccinated? Well, if you are able, check out the art for this episode. Otherwise, look in the show notes as I've linked to the article from the Today Show showing this absurd piece of Corona Theater. So, what are the clips I'm going to share? Well, the first is an article that Matt Taibbi wrote for his Substack blog titled C.J. Hopkins, Critic of the New Normal. In it, Taibbi introduces Hopkins to us and then conducts an interview in which Hopkins offers some very insightful observations about this neoliberal march toward totalitarianism. The second clip is Hopkins' most recent column on his blog, Consent Factory, titled The Criminalization of Dissent. As always, links for both of these pieces can be found in the show notes. Now, why am I devoting an episode to this man who I only discovered a few days ago via Taibi? Because, well, I think he's a kindred spirit whose analysis of what is going on in the big picture is pretty darn accurate in my humble freaking opinion. In addition, like me, Hopkins is someone who is long identified as a liberal, but has, as Taibbi wrote, interpreted a lot of the coronavirus response as an opportunistic authoritarian power grab by the global neoliberal project. Amen. This puts me and Hopkins at odds with the vast majority of our fellow liberals, who I believe, to put it nicely, have fallen under a spell cast by the neoliberal-supporting, globalist-promoting, transhumanist-desiring media. Oh, folks, that was a mouthful. Hopefully in future episodes I'll cover why I think those are all accurate descriptions for the MSM. Now, you may wonder how I've managed to not fall under this 
this spell. Well, actually, I'm reasonably sure living as an expat in a country that isn't primarily English-speaking helps. In addition, I think it's because I pay attention to a wide variety of media, from people who simply cover politics, from the left, right, and all places in between, to those who dig into conspiracy theories, some who support them, some who are skeptical of them, to those who view things through an esoteric lens. This is not to say I believe all, or even any of it. No, I employ what I call open-minded skepticism, meaning I give everything an ear, but believe just about none of it. Anyway, when I find myself tossing out... Anyway, while I find myself tossing out a fair amount of bathwater as I save the baby, one issue I frequently run into is that much of the critique of the current situation comes from those who have a right-leaning bent, i.e. from those who thought Trump was a decent guy, or even a good president, who was victimized by the deep state. Now I think he was, in many ways, victimized by the deep state, but if you go back to episodes 1 and 2 of season 2 of this podcast, you can hear that it's not my take on the man that he was a good president at all. Like me, Hopkins isn't in the Trump camp. He refers to Trump as a narcissistic ass clown. Yeah, that description works for me and falls in line with a phrase I've been using about Trump, which is he was an extremely useful idiot for this neoliberal march toward totalitarianism. Yes, he was the perfect foil the perfect bad guy to refocus on as the war on terror and its Islamic extremist boogeyman were running out of steam. By the way, is it boogeyman or bogeyman? I kind of laugh about that, because when I hear the term boogeyman, which is how I've always pronounced it, I can't help but imagine a bunch of people on the dance floor with big afros dancing to disco. Yeah, sure, scary people? Makes sense to me. But I digress. And I'm also getting ahead of myself, and also borrowing some of my new understanding gained from reading Hopkins' work. Last, in this episode, I'll give you a shortened Riverside Rambler section from a new location, but yes, still next to a river. I won't go into the details of all I talk about, see the show notes if you care, but one thing I bring up is how I recorded a 43-minute segment that I was going to post as this podcast. You'll hear me wrestling with whether it is even worth sharing, and well, I've decided I'll just post it as a bonus episode in the next day or two, and unlike this one, I won't be spending any time editing it. As I state in this episode, I'd like this podcast to be a bit more focused and polished, to make it more professional and more worth your time. But to do that, I'll have to spend more time on my end editing and focusing my efforts. We'll see if I follow through. Stay tuned. Anyway, I wanted to include the Riverside Rambler section because I wanted to have a record of where I was at mentally and emotionally this week. Why? Well, this has been kind of a big breakthrough week for me. I feel like I've been really stuck in the mud in 2021, dealing with a lot of anxiety about my life and my role in the world more than I can remember at any other time in my life. But something snapped this week, and I'm feeling a lot better, and I wanted that to be heard. I think the effort I put into this podcast is also a testament to this fact. 
Okay, folks, this intro has turned into a doozy in and of itself, so I'm going to stop my yapping and get on with the show. Enjoy. A quick note. This podcast is, as always, evolving. For most of 2021, I've been doing these rambles by the river. Stream of consciousness, me talking about topics and just letting things go where they will. However, I know that listening to those, it can be time-consuming and maybe sometimes not all that interesting. I know this because I've listened back to some of them, and that's been my experience with them. That said, I'd like to do more podcasts like the one you hear today where I'm reading media that I find valuable and that I think my listeners will benefit from hearing. If you go back to my podcast from a year ago, April, May of 2020, you'll see I was doing a lot more episodes like that. The episodes were a lot more written and prepared, and I took more time on them. And I think they're a better listen. So going forward, I'd like to do that. However, we'll see. It depends on time and motivation. One more thing I'd like to do more of is interviews. I've only done one with my pal Dan here in Japan, and I'd like to get more on here. I've reached out to a few people, and they've said they'd be willing to do it. But if you're listening to this, and any of the topics I cover on this show, from issues like personal growth to more esoteric topics such as astrology and tarot and spirituality to current events. If any of these topics appeal to you, or you just think you'd be the kind of person who could have an interesting conversation with me, reach out to me. You can find me in the show notes via social media. Okay, that's all I wanted to say. Enjoy the show. The following is from Matt Taibbi's Meet the Censored series on his Substack blog, TK News. Meet the Censored, C.J. Hopkins, critic of the, quote, new normal, unquote. Subhead, internet platforms have had a sense of humor failure about the Germany-based playwright, author, and satirist, one of many zapped for criticisms of pandemic policies. The article begins. The arrival of COVID-19 has crashed America on a paradox that reads like the plot of a bad Star Trek episode. Half the country mistakes science for a set of inflexible decrees and demands it be worshipped as a religion. The other half believes the first group is always lying and defies even its sensible dictates in its own theology of liberation. Science, a deliberative process, is collateral damage to the battle. C.J. Hopkins is an American playwright, novelist, and columnist living in Berlin. His writing first came to my attention shortly after the election of Donald Trump, when he was one of the first American writers anywhere to peg Russiagate in the campaign against fake news as a targeting mechanism for identifying dissident groups who now needed to be monitored and perhaps censored. He wrote this in late 2016. Who's behind this fake news menace? Well, Putin, naturally, but not just Putin. It appears to be the work of a vast conspiracy of virulent anti-establishment types, ultra-alt-rightists, ultra-leftists, libertarian retirees, armchair socialists, sandernistas, 
Corbinistas, ontological terrorists, fascism normalizers, poorly educated anti-globalism freaks, and just garden-variety Clinton haters. Not long into the Trump presidency, when there began to be questions about factual errors popping up in sensational exposés about the orange one, Hopkins wrote, Absurd as it obviously is, millions of Americans are now rushing to defend the most fearsome propaganda machine in the history of fearsome propaganda machines from one inarticulate populist boogeyman who can't maintain his train of thought for more than 15 or 20 seconds. Hopkins was no Trump fan, but his writings from the Trump era became an often hilarious review of the catastrophizing that was the mandatory posture of op-ed pages during those years. He skewered hand-wringing pundits who, beginning in late 2016, predicted the end of civilization in total seriousness, from The Guardian announcing the beginning of an, quote, age of darkness, unquote, and the end of, quote, civilized order, to Paul Krugman's prediction, a global recession with no end in sight, to Jonathan Chait, after heroically vowing not to flee the country with his terrified family, guaranteeing Trump would, quote, shake the republic to its foundations. His take on the pandemic began in a similar vein. Once again, he took aim at overwrought official rhetoric, interpreting a lot of the coronavirus response as an opportunistic, authoritarian power grab by the global neoliberal project. He was critical of Germany's creepily named Infection Protection Act, a law that took power from the country's 16 states, and allowed for the open-ended imposition of any measure the federal authorities deemed necessary, including lockdowns and overnight curfews. He blanched as the government's response to protests against all of this grew increasingly ham-fisted. His tweet, Thousands gathered outside the Reichstag building in Berlin to protest the new normal totalitarianism this morning, so the police declared the demonstration illegal and turned the water cannons on them. Are you satisfied yet, totalitarians? Most of all, Hopkins has been critical of the emotional tenor of propaganda around COVID-19, which treats the crisis not as a logistical problem to be solved, but as a signal that people should fundamentally alter their expectations for life, lowering demands for political freedoms, making the terror of death a constant public relations fixation, and embracing a new normal of heightened surveillance and security rituals. Society has been transformed into an enormous hospital from which there is no escape, he wrote, adding, You've seen the photos of the happy new normals dining out at restaurants, relaxing at the beach, jogging, attending school, and so on, going about their normal lives with their medical-looking masks and prophylactic face shields. What you're looking at is the pathologization of society, the pathologization of everyday life, the physical parentheses, social, manifestation of a morbid obsession with disease and death. Not long ago, Hopkins shared on Facebook a picture of a tower in Dusseldorf on which was written the message, vaccination equals freedom. He compared it to the infamous Auschwitz message, Arbeit macht frei, i.e. work shall set you free. Facebook said it violated community standards against, quote, dangerous individuals, unquote, and removed it to prevent Quote, offline harm, unquote. He soon found that friends and acquaintances were prevented from sharing this in other posts of his. A website where he publishes also appeared to be permanently slapped with warning labels, one fairly well known. 
he tells the story below. The political manias that have grown up around coronavirus want to sort people into groups that believe science and don't. But the problem there is that much of the propaganda around coronavirus has intentionally blurred distinctions between scientific and political authority. A trend both in reporting and censorship involves describing any political opposition to pandemic policy as scientific denialism. People opposed to vaccine passports become, quote, anti-vaxxers, unquote. Opponents of curfews or lockdowns become virus, quote, deniers, and so on. Sometimes they are both things, but not always. I'd be the last person to ever suggest an unvaccinated person go without a mask. I wore one everywhere since this thing started. But the symbolism of, say, a vaccinated Joe Biden still wearing a mask outdoors in defiance of CDC guidelines, or Kamala Harris releasing pictures of herself wearing a mask for a Zoom call, is increasingly obvious. For a politician, the mask is a symbol of the authority he or she has borrowed from science, and removing one is a symbol that the fear justifying emergency power has subsided. It's hardly surprising to see a reluctance to take masks off, even when scientists say it's fine to do so. The German Domestic Intelligence Service recently announced that it's put coronavirus deniers under surveillance, because as the New York Times explains, they pose a risk of undermining the state. Whether or not that will include someone like Hopkins is anyone's guess. But it's become clear in recent months and weeks that the standard for deleting or blocking coronavirus-related content is widening dramatically to include everything from tasteless jokes to sarcastic complaints about health officials to the dreaded questions about Wuhan. A previous subject of this column, U.S. Right to Know, may have been dinged by Google for publishing public records about U.S.-funded collaborations with the infamous Wuhan Institute of Virology. Over the last year, scores of websites and Facebook accounts were either shut down or suspended for various speculations about the Wuhan Institute. But now that former CDC director Robert Redfield told Sanjay Gupta on CNN, quote, I'm of the point of view that I still think the most likely etiology of this pathology in Wuhan was from a laboratory. Escaped. Once prohibitive views have had to be re-mainstreamed. This underscored what should have been an obvious problem with shutting down discussions at the outset of complex news events. I talked about these and other questions with Hopkins, who on the page is fulminating, sarcastic, hyperbolic, funny, and opinionated. I don't agree with him about some things. I'm not particularly not a capitalist, for instance, but I never thought agreement was a prerequisite for enjoying a writer, and Hopkins is a fun one. He is the kind of person who is frankly too blunt and too interesting to be employed at an American newspaper, which is great for his readers, but probably less of a gas for him since his type tends to be the first sent off the plank in any censorship regime. Incidentally, I'd be interested to hear any stories from any readers about having COVID-19-related content removed or deleted. Here's the account from Hopkins. Taibi, what stories have you been prevented from sharing on the Internet? Hopkins, Perhaps the most dramatic example was the censorship of a Facebook post featuring a photo of a New Normal art exhibit in Germany, where the artist projected vaccination equals freedom on one of those gigantic TV towers that we have here. Of course, that evoked the infamous Arbeit macht frei sign over the gates of Auschwitz, 
which I noted in my post, i.e., not quite Arbic mocked Frey, but close enough. Facebook prevented people from sharing the post, and when they inquired about why, sent them this warning. Quote, Your post goes against our community standards on dangerous individuals and organizations. We don't allow symbols or support of dangerous individuals or organizations on Facebook. We define dangerous as things like terrorist activity, organized hate or violence, mass or serial murder, human trafficking, criminal or harmful activity. Unquote. Many people who tried to share the post had their accounts suspended or restricted. I covered this in detail in one of my Consent Factory columns, The New Normal Reality Police. More recently, YouTube censored an interview, Corona Cult, I did with Gunnar Kaiser, an author and well-known YouTuber here in Germany, on the grounds that it, quote, contains medical misinformation, unquote. The interview contains no medical information at all. It's just me and another author discussing our views of the COVID-19 restrictions, new normal ideology, global capitalism, totalitarianism, my novel, and so on. Those are the most notable examples. But I routinely hear from people on Facebook that they have been prevented from sharing my consent factory columns. I haven't been censored by Twitter that I know of, but they have pretty much, quote, unperson, unquote, off-guardian, which has been actively and critically reporting on the COVID-19 story since the beginning, and which reposts most of my columns. When you click on any off-guardian story on Twitter, you get a warning stating, quote, this link may be unsafe, unquote. Of course, there's nothing unsafe about off-guardian. The warning is simply a means of trying to scare people away from their website and content. The censorship is clearly targeted at any content deviating from the official COVID-19 slash new normal narrative. It has reached hysterical levels on Facebook, where any posts including the words vaccine, COVID, etc., are instantly festooned with an advisory warning about how, quote, vaccines are tested for safety and effectiveness. Unquote, or whatever. Taibi. The tech platforms will tell me you're spreading anti-vaxxer propaganda. What would be your response to that? Hopkins. They're half right. Almost everything I put out on social media is technically propaganda, i.e., quote, ideas, facts, or allegations spread deliberately to further one's cause or damage an opposing cause, unquote i.e., one of the Merriam-Webster definitions of the word. That said, most people think of propaganda as misleading, and I'm not trying to mislead anyone. I'm trying to urge people to question the official propaganda that the corporate media and other, quote, authoritative sources, unquote, inundate us with on a daily basis, much of which is, in fact, misleading. As for the anti-vaxxer part, A., I have no problem with vaccines that have been thoroughly tested and approved for public use, and which people aren't being coerced into taking by the introduction of a medical segregation system. And B, these derogatory labels, anti-vaxxer, conspiracy theorist, and COVID denier, are meaningless. They're purely tactical terms, like the term extremist. Their only purpose is to demonize anyone who questions or challenges the official new normal narrative. Incidentally, COVID denier, the official demonization label in Germany, has a particularly horrible ring to it here, which is no accident. The government and media, 
have intentionally equated anyone who questions or challenges the official new normal narrative with anti-Semites and neo-Nazis for over a year. It's the most effective and frightening demonization campaign I've ever witnessed, and I've witnessed a few. Tybee. Is Facebook's content moderation policy in Germany different from its U.S. policy? Is there a cultural difference in how Germans view content moderation, since they already had hate speech laws? Hopkins. I'm sure German Facebook's policy is different, but this censorship isn't limited to Germany. It's worldwide. As for the cultural difference, yes, there is one, but it's mainly focused on anti-Semitism and anything to do with the Nazis, which is why the official campaign to demonize those of us challenging or protesting against the new normal as anti-Semites has been so effective here. Being accused of anti-Semitism is every prominent German's worst nightmare. Tybee, you were one of the first people to express skepticism about Russiagate. Do you see a connection between that story and this one? And folks, before I read on, please listen to this carefully. This is excellent. Hopkins, absolutely. Same operation, different narrative. Okay, I'll try to boil all this down as much as I can, so bear with me. We have to go back to 2016. So there, global capitalism was happily destabilizing, restructuring, privatizing, and debt-enslaving the entire planet, and cleaning up little pockets of resistance to global capitalist ideology, as it had been doing since the fall of the USSR, which is when global capitalism became the first unopposed, globally hegemonic ideological system in history. The war on terror was still the primary official narrative. Then Brexit, Trump and the whole populist backlash against globalization and wokeness that erupted in 2016. So, global capitalism, or global cap as I've taken to calling it, needed to adjust the official narrative to delegitimize Trump, who was a. an unauthorized president, and b. a symbol of that populist backlash, basically a big fuck you to the global capitalist establishment from the American people. Okay. Global Cap spends the next four years demonizing Trump as both a Russian intelligence asset and literally the resurrection of Adolf Hitler, and everyone who voted for him, or who refused to vote for Clinton, as fascist or white supremacist extremist, or just racist. Russiagate fell apart in the spring of 2019, but by that time, Global Cap had already shifted to Hitlergate and was whipping up mass hysteria over quote, literal fascism and the coming frontal, quote, attack on democracy, and presumably the U.S. military, that was going to be carried out by Trump's underground militia of Alex Jones watching white supremacists, or whatever. But Russiagate slash Hitlergate was never about Trump, who was never a threat to global cap, and was always just a narcissistic ass clown. It was about reminding us who's running things, and what happens if we start rebelling against the hegemony of global capitalism and electing unauthorized ASCON presidents instead of the corporate puppets Global Cap has carefully vetted and presented to us to obediently vote for. That part's great, by the way. What happens is, they make an example of the ASCON president and demonize everyone who voted for him as traitors and racists. The narrative culminated in 2020 with the BLM protests slash riots, the storming of the capital, etc. Russian Hitler was vanquished. Democracy triumphed. 
So now it was time to restore normality, or rather, new normality. Essentially, what the last four to five years have been about is crushing resistance to global caps hegemony and ideology throughout the West, as it crushed resistance to its hegemony and ideology in the Middle East during the War on Terror. What better way to crush a populist rebellion and remind us who is really in charge than to foment mass hysteria over a clearly non-apocalyptic virus, impose a bunch of unnecessary totalitarian emergency measures, cancel our constitutional rights, censor and or demonize dissent, and otherwise transform societies into pathologized totalitarian police states. The extreme totalitarian phase won't last. We're already shifting into phase two. But the new normal is here to stay. Or that's the plan, anyway. Which is not a surprise, or it shouldn't be. Global Cap announced the transition to the new normal very clearly, right at the outset, in March-April 2020, when they were still showing us fake photos of Chinese people dropping dead in the street, projecting a horrific 3.4% death rate, i.e. hundreds of millions of deaths, and otherwise carrying out the initial shock and awe phase. Okay, before somebody calls me a conspiracy theorist, global cap is not a bunch of guys in a room conspiring to do all this. Global capitalism is a system. Systems function according to their own structures and logic. What I'm talking about is not individual people conspiring, although individual people certainly do, and that is part of it. I'm talking about the logical evolution of a global hegemonic ideological system, i.e. a system without external enemies, which has nothing left to do but consolidate power and eliminate internal resistance. If you understand the last five to six years, actually the last 30 years, that way, as I do, this shift to a less democratic, more ideologically monolithic, more totalitarian social structure, i.e. the new normal, is not at all surprising. On the contrary, it is the next logical step. The corrupt state of the corporate media that you and Glenn Greenwald have been writing about recently is also a part of this shift toward an ideologically monolithic global capitalistic societal structure. But I think I've rattled on here long enough, so let's leave that for another time. Tybee. Have you lost friends in the theater world because of this issue? Hopkins. Yes, friends and colleagues. Questioning the official COVID narrative or any aspect of the new normal is pretty much the third rail in the arts and entertainment business. You interviewed Mark Crispin Miller about what he's had been going through defending himself from the new normal fanatics at NYU. That kind of thing happens less formally in the arts. As Woody Allen famously put it, it's not dog-eat-dog, it's more a dog-doesn't-return-other-dogs-phone-calls type of business. Tybee. Have you self-censored because of all this, and if so, in what way? Hopkins. Does it sound like it? No. I think experiencing the rollout of the new normal for over a year, compiling stories of police goon squads raiding families in their homes because their neighbors reported them for having friends over to dinner, arresting old ladies for strolling in the park without permission, witnessing the media demonize Holocaust survivors as anti-Semites for protesting the COVID restrictions, reading ex-colleagues demanding that the government set up internment camps for those who refuse to be vaccinated, and all the rest of it has only made me more outspoken and, unfortunately, less funny.
The Criminalization of Dissent by C.J. Hopkins Posted to his blog, consentfactory.org, May 3rd, 2021 One of the hallmarks of totalitarian systems is the criminalization of dissent. Not just the stigmatization of dissent or the demonization of dissent, but the formal criminalization of dissent and any other type of opposition to the official ideology of the totalitarian system. Global capitalism has been inching its way toward this step for quite some time, and now, apparently, it is ready to take it. Germany has been leading the way. For over a year, anyone questioning or protesting the COVID emergency measures or the official COVID-19 narrative has been demonized by the government and the media. And sadly, but not completely unexpectedly, the majority of the German public. And now, such dissent is officially, quote, extremism, unquote. Yes, that's right. In new normal Germany, if you dissent from the official state ideology, you are now officially a dangerous extremist. The German intelligence agency, the BFV, has even invented a new category of extremists in order to allow themselves to legally monitor anyone suspected of being, quote, anti-democratic and or delegitimizing the state in a way that endangers security, unquote. Like, you know, non-violently protesting or speaking out against or criticizing or satirizing the so-called new normal. Naturally, I'm a little worried as I have engaged in most of these extremist activities. My thought crimes are just sitting there on the internet waiting to be scrutinized by the BFV. They're probably Google translating this column right now, compiling a list of all the people reading it, and their Facebook friends and Twitter followers, and professional associates, and family members, and anyone any of the aforementioned people have potentially met with, or casually mentioned who might have engaged in similar thought crimes. You probably think I'm joking, don't you? I'm not joking. Not even slightly. The Federal Office for Protection of the Constitution is actively monitoring anyone questioning or challenging the official new normal ideology. The, quote, COVID deniers, the conspiracy theorists, the anti-vaxxers, the dreaded querdinkers, i.e. people who think outside the box, and anyone else they feel like monitoring who has refused to join the Covidian cult. We're now officially enemies of the state, no different than any other terrorist. Or, okay, technically a little different. As the New York Times reported last week, uh, German intelligence puts coronavirus deniers under surveillance, article, quote, the danger from coronavirus deniers and conspiracy theorists does not fit the mold posed by the usual politically driven groups, including those on the far left and right, or by Islamic extremists, unquote. Still, according to the German Interior Ministry, we diabolical COVID deniers, conspiracy theorists, and anti-vaxxers have, quote, targeted the state itself, its leaders, businesses, the press, and globalism, Unquote, and have, quote, attacked police officers, unquote, and, quote, defied civil authorities, unquote. Moreover, back in August of 2020, 
In a dress rehearsal for the, quote, storming of the Capitol, COVID-denying insurrectionists scaled the steps of Parliament, i.e. the Reichstag. Naturally, the New York Times neglects to mention that this so-called storming of the Reichstag was performed by a small subgroup of protesters to whom the German authorities had granted a permit to assemble. Apart from the main demonstration, which was massive and completely peaceful, on the steps of the Reichstag, which the German police had, for some reason, left totally unguarded. In light of the background of the person the German authorities issued this Steps of the Reichstag protest permit to, a known former NPD functionary, in other words, a neo-Nazi, well, the whole thing seemed a bit questionable to me. But what do I know? I'm just a, quote, conspiracy theorist, unquote. According to Al Jazeera, the German interior ministry explained that these Gordon King, quote, extremists encouraged supporters to ignore official orders and challenge the state monopoly on the use of force, unquote. Seriously, can you imagine anything more dangerous? Mindlessly following orders and complying with the state's monopoly on the use of force are the very cornerstones of modern democracy, or some sort of political system anyway. But see, there I go again, being anti-democratic and delegitimizing the state, not to mention relativizing the Holocaust, also a criminal offense in Germany, by comparing one totalitarian system to another, as I have done repeatedly on social media and in a column I published in November of 2020, when the Parliament passed the Infection Protection Act, which bears no comparison whatsoever to the Enabling Act of 1933. This isn't just a German story, of course. As I reported in a column in February, the new normal war on domestic terror is a global war, and it's just getting started. According to a Department of Homeland Security National Terrorism Advisory System bulletin and the liberal corporate media propaganda machine, democracy remains under imminent threat from these, quote, ideologically motivated violent extremists with objections to the exercise of governmental authority, unquote, and other such, quote, grievances fueled by false narratives, unquote, including, quote, anger over COVID-19 restrictions, unquote. These COVID-denying violent extremists have apparently joined forces with the white supremacist, Russia-backed, Trump-loving Putin Nazis that terrorized democracy for the past four years and almost overthrew the U.S. government by sauntering around inside the U.S. Capitol building without permission, scuffling with police, attacking furniture, and generally acting rude and unruly. No, they didn't actually kill anyone, as the corporate media all reported they did, but trespassing in a government building and putting your feet up on politicians' desks is pretty much exactly the same as terrorism. Or whatever. It's not like the truth actually matters. Not when you are whipping up mass hysteria over imaginary Russian assets, white supremacist militias, COVID-denying extremists, anti-vax terrorists, and apocalyptic plagues. When you're rolling out a new official ideology, a pathologized totalitarian ideology, and criminalizing all dissent, the point is not to appear to be factual. The point is to just terrorize this shit out of people. As Hermann Goring famously explained regarding how to lead a country to war, 
and the principle holds true for any big transition, like the one we are experiencing currently, quote, the people can always be brought to the bidding of the leaders. That is easy. All you have to do is tell them they are being attacked and denounce the pacifists for lack of patriotism and exposing the country to danger, unquote. Go back and read those quotes from the German Interior Ministry and the DHS again, slowly. The message they are sending is unmistakably clear. It might not seem all that new, but it is. Yes, they have been telling us we are being attacked and denouncing critics, protesters, and dissidents for 20 years, i.e. since the War on Terror was launched in 2001 and for the last four years in their War on Populism. But this is a whole new level of it. A fusion of official narratives and their respective official enemies into a singular, aggregate official narrative in which dissent will no longer be permitted. Instead, it will be criminalized, or it will be pathologized. Seriously, go back and read those quotes again. Global capitalist governments and their corporate media mouthpieces are telling us, in no uncertain terms, that objection to their authority will no longer be tolerated, nor will dissent from their official narratives. Such dissent will be deemed dangerous and, above all, false. It will not be engaged with or rationally debated. It will be erased from public view. There will be an inviolable official reality. Any deviation from official reality or defiance of these civil authorities will be labeled extremism and dealt with accordingly. This is the essence of totalitarianism, the establishment of an inviolable official ideology and the criminalization of dissent. And that is what is happening right now. A new official ideology is being established. Not a state ideology, a global ideology. The new normal is that official ideology. Technically, it is an official post-ideology, an official reality, an axiomatic fact, which only criminals and psychopaths would deny. I'll be digging deeper into new normal ideology and pathologize totalitarianism in my future columns and, sorry, they probably won't be very funny. For now, I'll leave you with two more quotes. The emphasis is mine as ever. Here's California State Senator Richard Pan, author of an op-ed in the Washington Post, titled, Anti-Vax Extremism is Akin to Domestic Terrorism, quoted in the Los Angeles Times. Quote, These extremists have not yet been held accountable, so they continue to escalate violence against the body public. We must now summon the political will to demand that domestic terrorists face consequences for their, emphasis, words and actions. Our democracy and our lives depend on it. They've been building alliances with white supremacists, conspiracy theorists, and others on the far right. And here's Peter Hotez in Nature magazine, quote, The United Nations and the highest levels of government must take direct, even confrontational approaches with Russia and, emphasis, move to dismantle anti-vaccine groups in the United States. Efforts must expand into the realm of cybersecurity, law enforcement, public education, and international relations. Emphasis, a high-level interagency task force reporting to the UN Secretary General could assess the full impact of anti-vaccine aggression 
and propose tough, balanced measures. Emphasis. The task force should include experts who have tackled complex global threats such as terrorism, cyber attacks, and nuclear armament, because anti-science is now approaching similar levels of peril. It is becoming increasingly clear that advancing immunization requires a counteroffensive. We'll be hearing a lot more rhetoric like this as this new, more totalitarian structure of global capitalism gradually develops. Probably a good idea to listen carefully and assume the new normals mean exactly what they say. I'm in a new spot right now, under a really nice tree. Looks like an oak, I'm guessing. Uh, near the Eno River, not far from my house, next to the big park, Umanomori. Like, there's a trail, there's one trail that leads into the park, and there's one trail that runs parallel between the park and the river, and I took that trail and found this tree, and I'm sitting here. It's evening, Friday evening, May 14th, 2021. It's been hot today, got up to close to 90 degrees, but there's a nice breeze now, and the sun's going down. And it's just pleasant now, it's still warm though. Uh, and I'm sitting here, and kind of some tall grasses around me, and I'm thinking, we're kind of on the edge of the comfort zone I have with the uh, snake season. That's not to say there aren't snakes out already. I've seen one, not that, actually about a month ago. And, uh, but I'm just going to take my chances here that nature will not, that uh, God will not send the snake to tempt me with any apples or bite my body. Because um, this is a really nice place. I've been in my room all day, all afternoon, and since, well, since the morning, since about 7 a.m., Mostly in my room upstairs, and it was it was warm in there, and I was gonna just keep hanging out there before dinner, but then I'm like, let's just get out and get some fresh air and find somewhere that feels a little cooler, and this seems to be the spot. Now I recorded a 43-minute segment that I was going to use for the podcast, and kind of going back and forth on what I listened to it this afternoon as I took my little afternoon, my daily nap, and which means I didn't really hear all of it, but I don't know, it's kind of me doing what I'm doing right now, rambling, and I don't know. Um, there's some interesting insights that I come to about my situation, but I feel kind of like it reminds me of something I read from Mark Twain, which is that it takes more time to write a short letter than a long one because you have to be concise in your editing and etc etc and so i come to some pretty interesting kind of stumble upon some realizations but i don't know it didn't really feel like it's something that would someone who didn't know me very well or would really get that much out of to have to listen you know for 43 minutes of listening not really sure it's worth it but um Anyway, it's been a nice week, and I want to read something here from, there's, you know, one of these apps that I have on my phone that I put on called The Pattern, you know, and it's a bit woo-woo, I guess. I don't even know where they get their info, but today there were two things 
the world update May 12th to May 14th. And so I think this is them like probably using astrology or something to kind of tap into the energies of, but it really resonated with what, where things have been for me this week. So I just want to read it. It's a, it says, and this is May 13th, 14th. So this is today, you know, um, today it can seem like a certain life and vitality has returned after a long period of darkness. Right now, try to allow yourself to feel enthusiastic about life. The next month is an ideal time to celebrate feeling alive. A fucking man. Then it says next, one more part. This shift might be subtle or dramatic, depending on your circumstances. You might notice a difference in your mental state. Like you've finally come through a period where you felt depressed or victimized or had to cope with trauma. Indeed. Perhaps you've gone through some trial or suffering that has left you depleted. Or you may know others who have experienced loss or hardship. Today marks an opening and a fresh start. Well, this is what I've been feeling really since Monday, since I had this experience where my computer seemed to have been lost to me and I kind of had a meltdown and then it turned out it was just me not having the battery charge. And it's a long story. I won't go into it all, but if you're really curious, I believe you can hear me talk more about what happened on that Monday in the bonus episode that I will be releasing after this one. Kind of a feeling of heaviness and anxiety that I've been really feeling strongly the past, especially the past, since March, I would say, has lifted. And I feel kind of back to my old self right now. But it's not my old self. Like, it feels like I earned this and like I've take, made some progress. But my zest for life, my feeling of giddiness and joy and being able to see the humor in things and that heaviness is lifted. It really has. And, and then there's another, another post. And this is the next one. Get your power back. And it's today there's an energy available that's meant to help you and others around you to reclaim the life force that has been lost recently. It's a moment to be grateful for having your power back and a certain enthusiasm for having regained it. You can enjoy being able to live and experiment with life again. If you're already feeling this energy, ideally you can seek out someone who needs to be reminded of how precious it is to be able to fully enjoy being alive. Today you might ask yourself, how can I celebrate being alive? And if you've had a recent difficult experience, can I let myself feel reborn now? No matter what else is happening in your life, you're here reading this. And you deserve to celebrate your life energy. And yeah, I really resonate with that. And uh, it's interesting because I don't look at this app all that often. Maybe once a week, if that. So it's interesting that I've been kind of pondering those themes. And then I looked at it today and I was like, reinforcement. And that's one of the things that's been happening this week is a lot of little subtle and not so subtle hints that yeah there's more going on here and yeah you're supported and yeah things are going to be okay and uh yeah it's been a challenging year and i think in one way i think partly there's a danger in having expectations and after 2020 and I think a lot of us probably felt this too, like, okay, 2021's got to be better, right? And I, you know, because I pay attention to astrology, the astrologers I was listening to were like saying, oh, actually the 2020 energy kind of wraps up through, it goes through this winter and we'll start feeling better in the spring and, you know, especially January and February are going to be heavy. And so I think for me, 
you know, I had some moments in March where things were, you know, it was kind of, but it's been this kind of, this spring has been sort of a, a struggle because it's like, okay, when's this new energy coming? And I'm tired of the heaviness and, you know, like I was, I remember I was trying to record, I was listening back lately. One of the things I've been doing is listening to my podcast from last year and I was listening to one I recorded in like, I think February. Um, it was definitely a, period where I was kind of feeling some hypomania and just feeling, you know, upbeat. And I just recorded me yakking. It was like a bonus episode with my guitar. And it was just me having fun. And I was like, I tried to do one of those like in the past few months and I just couldn't do it. I was like, I don't, I'm not going to fake that. You know, I can't fake that. It wouldn't come across as authentic and it would just make me more frustrated and mad. So you know, one of the the kind of mo's of this podcast has been be just be myself, just speak through with vulnerability and authenticity, and what will come of it will come of it. So, but I don't know. How are you feeling out there? Are you feeling better? Are you feeling worse or the same? Is, is have you noticed any energy shift in your life? How has 2021 been for you? And I'm not saying that it's all of a sudden gotten easy. Uh, I also would add that, you know, the weather warming up does tend to make things feel easier. And also the lengthening of the days, you know, like we're now in a, the period where it's one of the, in the Northern Hemisphere at least, it's one of the longest, you know, we got about two months here where we got more light than usual. And so here in Japan, I'll, I'll give you the exact stats here, but it gets light here really freaking early <laughs> and actually gets dark because we don't have daylight savings, but um, sunrise at 4.39 a.m. and sets at, well, it sets, according to this, in four minutes. And, you know, it's still light out right now. Like, I'm still sitting here and I can still see. So, you know, it's twilight. But twilight here is fast. It's much faster than in uh, where I'm from in Washington State, where twilight can be, this time of year, can be an hour, hour and a half, two hours in June, it feels like. I mean, in Washington, it seems like, peak, you know, summer solstice, it stays light till 9.30, 10 o'clock. And again, there is daylight savings, so that would be like 8.30 or 9 here. But usually by, I think the peak here is like, it'll be dark by, maybe it stays light till 7.30. Um, so, but yeah, current conditions right now, 75 degrees, 73 in the shade. There's some brute wind and 60% humidity. So it's really nice out right now. Um, but yeah, it's been hot today. And I say that, and again, it's things are all relative, because I was talking to my parents today, had kind of an impromptu call, and as we often do, we talk for a couple hours, and I was telling them how, you know, I've often told people that the weather here in May in this area is very much like summer in Washington State. And so that means, like, today, when I say, yeah, it was hot today, now in the summer when I hear my parents say, oh, it got hot here, I'll think back to this day here in May, where it was like, yeah, that did feel hot because relatively compared to the days around it, it is hot. But it's not like the summer hot here, you know, like I'm not sweating at all right now. I guess if, if I'd gone out and done some exercise or whatever, I would have sweated some. But And, you know, during the afternoon when I was in my room, I was I was getting kind of hot. And I had a little bit of that discomfort of a little bit of a headache and just kind of, you know, like things were a little bit, yeah beyond what I wanted it to be, but um, the thing about, like, I remember visiting Washington a couple summers ago, and there was a couple days there where it got up to days like this, 
And I remember my parents, oh, it's so hot, it's so hot. But I kept thinking to myself, you know, the di- one of the main differences between this it's so hot and it's so hot in summer in Japan is not just the fact, not just the daytime high, but the fact is, is that it can get, you can feel hot in the day, but you know that in the evening and overnight, it's still going to cool off. So you still get that relief where in Japan in the summer, like it doesn't, it just doesn't get, you know, like nighttime in Japan, the high temperature is like, you know, or low, I'm sorry, low temperature. It might get down to, you know, 75, if lucky 70, but often, yeah. Um, and we, and it's also super duper humid. So like if I was sitting out here, well, A, the grasses would be high, I'd be worried about snakes and shit, but if I was sitting out here, or even when I go out biking at night, as I often do in the summer, there's like all these like spider webs and just lots of life and it's very jungly and it's sticky and it's just like, even though it's cooler than it is in day, when it's temperature is like in the mid nineties and can get up close to a hundred um, with the real feel, it's like over, you know, 110, you know, so night it feels cooler, but you never, you just don't ever get that relief. And, uh, that's a big difference. That's a big difference. So, but again, it's all relative, but I just wanted to share that. I don't have anything really else to say right now. I'm going to, uh, stop this and keep this short. I've got a couple of clips I'm going to throw on here. Uh, I guess I have decided I won't be sharing that 42 minute one um but i got a couple things i want i'm going to read a piece i think i'm going to read the matt taibbi piece because it's really good and uh i'll do that and then share a couple other little things and then that'll be this week's post all right thanks for listening to this this is the ramble by the river section of the pot this week's podcast